With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Nonprofit Coach with Ted Hart. Since 2010, the most listened to radio show in the nonprofit sector dedicated to helping your charity succeed. It's no secret that combining online and offline techniques is the key to fundraising success, and practical nonprofit management advice is what you need. The Nonprofit Coach with Ted Hart is the perfect landing point to learn from top experts around the world who provide advice you can use. Ted Hart is without a doubt one of the foremost nonprofit thought leaders. Also a successful author, his books range from successful online fundraising to expert nonprofit management. Guests on the Nonprofit Coach are leaders in their field who share their insider tips and trade secrets in a conversational style both the experienced and novice will benefit from. Ted lectures around the world, but now he's here for you. From the latest in charity news, technology, fundraising, and social networking, Ted and his guests help you and your organization move to greater levels of efficiency and fundraising success. This is a live call-in show. Add your voice by calling 347-324-3080. After the show, you can find all our podcasts at tedhart.com. Click on the radio links. Don't forget to dial 347-324-3080. Now, welcome the host of the Nonprofit Coach, Ted Hart. And welcome here to this latest edition of the Nonprofit Coach. Welcome to the Happy Holidays uh, edition of the Nonprofit Coach. Of course, our annual every year expert that we have here on our holiday show is Case Sprinkle Grace, always one of the most popular shows uh, of the year, so we can't wait to get to page two. Uh, as our announcer mentioned, you can call in and ask questions. Uh, when we get to uh, the page two uh, expert uh, for today. Uh, you can also email me if you would like uh, over at tedhart at tedhart.com. We're also uh, live casting over on Facebook, so feel free to follow us over at facebook.com forward slash tedhart. And with that, it's time to get over to page one. Over here on page one, uh, we have a new member of uh, the, the team here uh, to give us the GuideStar Minute, uh, the Marketing and Outreach Manager who has just started over at GuideStar, Ariel Gart, is here with us. Welcome to the Nonprofit Coach, Ariel Gart. Wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. Um, as you all know, this is a very exciting time of year for all nonprofits. Just a few weeks have passed since Giving Tuesday, and the preliminary results are in. Um, Overall, Giving Tuesday 2017 was a huge success with more than $274 million raised online alone. And this money was raised by more than 2.4 million gifts and participation worldwide from over 150 different countries. Um, GuideStar nearly doubled our website visitors. 
um, from Giving Tuesday last year to more than 92,000 visitors on our site in just the one day. That's terrific. What, what, what do you uh, uh, attribute that to, uh, a greater interest in transparency and uh, being able to independently review charities before you make a gift? Absolutely. It's definitely due to a few different things, one of which is actually our partnership um, with Facebook. They referred more than 53,000 visitors from their website to our website on Giving Tuesday alone. Um, and this is really exciting because it means a couple of things. One is that we're getting more nonprofit information in front of people where they are already are. And two, that doing so has resulted not just in increased giving, but more educated giving as well. That's terrific. What else is uh, in the GuideStar Minute? Absolutely. Um, so giving season isn't over. There's still 12 more days for donors to give in order to receive the benefit on their 2017 taxes. So we are still encouraging all nonprofits to donate their um, GuideStar nonprofit pro profile to make sure that their best foot forward um, is in front of all the donors when they're making the year-end decisions. 10% of all online donors are on all online gifts are made during the last three days of the year. Um, and we're also really excited that Facebook has made an announcement that they are eliminating nonprofit fees, meaning that 100% of donations made through Facebook payments are now going directly to those organizations. So it's been a great last couple of weeks for us all at GuideStar and for everyone in the nonprofit sector, and we're really looking forward to everything in our pipeline in 2018. That's terrific. Well, that's great news and certainly a reason why nonprofit organizations need to uh, keep their information on GuideStar updated. We'll just remind our uh, listeners that here on the Nonprofit Coach, uh, we have for many years um, supported and promoted GuideStar uh, because in our six pillars for online success, GuideStar ranks number two right behind um, a very strong uh, uh, website and social media uh, presence for your nonprofit organization uh, is GuideStar and completing your GuideStar uh, profile and keeping that up to date. Uh, any other updates, uh, Ariel? We're just really excited for 2018. We will be releasing a report on the financial health of nonprofits across the country, which is very similar to the report that we did specifically for Philadelphia this year. Um, and we're also hosting a nonprofit winter games kind of a fun and exciting competition to encourage nonprofits to update their profile. So just stay tuned for all kinds of announcements coming out of GuideStar in the beginning of the year. Terrific. Well, and we know that uh, GuideStar will be back with their GuideStar uh, Minute in January uh, to give us update and to make sure that all of our listeners know how they can participate in the GuideStar Winter Games. Uh, that is terrific update. And Ariel, you did a great job for your first time here on the Nonprofit Coach. Happy Holidays. Happy holidays. Thank you. Thank you. And that's uh, Ariel Gart. Uh, she's the marketing and outreach manager now over at GuideStar.org. Uh, with that, it is time to get on over to page two. Kay Sprinkle Grace, CFRE, is in her bio, says that she is a San Francisco-based uh, organizational consultant, 
uh, providing workshops and con uh, consultation to local, regional, and national and international organizations. Now, I say it says that because I think uh, Kay is so popular and so busy and works with so many people, the amount of time she's actually in San Francisco is probably less than the time that she is somewhere else on this planet uh, providing strategic development planning, case and board development, staff development, and other issues related to leadership of the fundraising process. And of course, we're thrilled to have you back here, Kay Sprinkle Grace, our holiday show of the Nonprofit Coach, and you are always our guest. Welcome back. Thank you, Ted. Thank you. I'm delighted to be uh, once again talking with your many, many listeners uh, at this season, this season of holiday and light and a lot of love and being together. And really, it's, it's a time not just because of Giving Tuesday or the end of the year, but I think it is a time when we really manifest an aspect of philanthropy that I've only recently become curious about and learned more about. It actually comes from our friend Paul Shervish, who advanced the idea that, as the, that philanthropists are really caregivers, uh, that we care about our communities and that people give because they care and then they keep giving because they care and, and because we care about them. And so... I've been thinking about that, and I, it converged in my mind with something else that I've been thinking about very, very much this year, and that is that we need to probably start thinking of ourselves less as a philanthropy sector and more of a philanthropy movement, because what we're seeing out in our communities is that everybody's getting on the philanthropy bandwagon, and whether it's starting their own organizations, whether it's the proliferation of B Corps, whether it is divisions within corporations, and you know that, Ted, from the variety of organizations you work with, that people are thinking, right. how can I make my community stronger? Who can I partner with? And we, I believe, in terms of what the greatest gift we can give from our experience as a sector is to say, hey, look at us. We have the experience. We have the integrity. We have the trust of the community. We have all these things. Let us lead you. Let us lead mm -hmm. a movement that will be inclusive. And you know what's really ironic, and because of your global work, you see it as well, is that it's much more uh, collaborative in other parts of the world. And I've worked with a, a wonderful woman in Serbia the last couple of years. And what their foundation has done, the Divac Foundation, they have mobilized corporations, individuals, foundations, associations, and they've said, what are the problems we need to solve? And one of the biggest ones they tackled were the schools in Serbia, which were very, very underfunded. The infrastructure was simply horrifying in some of them, you know, Turkish toilets and no running water. And they mobilized together and they solved it with the leadership that the Divac Foundation provides. And so it seems to me that as we look at the problems in our society that seem not to get relief, homelessness, access to education, hunger, uh, food security, um, 
why can't we, as the people experiencing philanthropy, give our communities our greatest gift, which is not to you know, create more organizations, but it is to create more solutions. How? By partnering with other organizations who could really learn from us. So yeah. the combination hey, of... Yeah, the combination I, I just, of Shermish's idea, you yeah. know, with the caregiving and then, then this. So uh, what do you think? Well, I, I love that. And what I wanted to do is just for our audience, just uh, tee up the because the, you always have your finger on the pulse of what's happening in philanthropy and then tying that back to our listeners in terms of why does this matter. And I, and I love this idea of a movement. So uh, I just want to share with you sort of the descriptor uh, for today to give context to this discussion uh, for our listeners today. Um, so the, the topic here is uh, what is our greatest gift? And, and again, this is a, a terrific time of year to be addressing this issue. As more and more organizations become involved in philanthropic activity in our communities, what is the gift that the philanthropic sector can give to all who would like to solve our societal issues or enrich the human experience through arts, culture, and humanity? Uh, and how do we extend our experience, integrity, respect, and trust to lead our society into a new era of philanthropy, one that is broadly shared by people across all organizations? And this, this brings us back to a, a theme that, that each year we keep coming back to, uh, Kay, and, and that is that philanthropy is much more than just the budget. It is much more than just needing to fundraise to a goal. It's much more than the buildings that are um, built uh, for the services that are provided, but it comes back to this human element. And I, and I love and appreciate how you're bringing us back to, for all of our listeners, yes, you have budgets that you have to meet and you need to fundraise to, to meet those budgets. But challenge yourself to ask, are you fundraising out of habit? Does your organization exist out of habit? Or are you able to take a step back and truly look at, and I think this is where you're going with this, truly look at what is the impact of your organization's existence on your community, uh, on, on society, uh, and on the world? Because that's where philanthropists, where donors, whatever you want to call them, people who give of themselves, of their time and their treasure to support philanthropic activities, that's where they feel the connection. They don't feel the connection to, I helped you make a budget. I helped uh, pad your balance sheet. Um, and, and so it's, it's, is it a call, Kay, on your part to reconnect to the essence of philanthropy? I think it's a real big call for us to take a look at our messages, Ted. I think that our messages persist in describing our needs rather than our impact uh, and those familiar as you are with, with my philosophy know that my principal rubric always is that people give because we meet needs, not because we have needs. We just need to get over it. And yet I see, yeah. particularly this time of year, when people uh, you know, are just out there raising lots and lots of money, that there isn't this sense of what is the model here? How are we engaging people? How are we reaching out to people? What is the impact? What are the conditions that exist in our communities 
that we're not able to address by kind of frenzied fundraising. Where is the strategy? And I gave a talk. Fundraising fake. Fundraising to have the money to, again, pad a balance sheet. But what are you actually accomplishing? What are you accomplishing? Right. What, what, what can the community see of whatever it is that your mission is? It's, you know, it's and I always go back. I always go back to Carlos Slim, you know, the Mexican uh, telecommunications billionaire, who yeah. <laughs> announced, you know, years ago that he had put hundreds of millions of dollars into charitable causes, and there, nothing was different. And mm-hmm. that's when he f- created his his new foundation which is an operating foundation, which means that, of course, that 70% of the money goes to projects of his own and you right. know, that, that he actually operates just like the Gates do. And so what we're missing is the partnership, and this is what I really want to emphasize with the gift, the greatest gift that we can give. The greatest gift that we can give is to reach out across sectors and say, Come and sit with us and think about how we're going to solve these issues in our community. How can our schools be stronger? How can our homeless issue be resolved? Instead of just this frenzied raising of money, and yet it doesn't seem to have the impact because as long as we're in kind of in the silo of the sector, it's like our job. Well, you know what? It's not. It is the community's job, and we should be leading it. And I'm, I'm working on a, a little book on this. I don't know if it's going to be a book or a blog or what, but I've done a, like a, a, some you know, diagrams with it. And it just seems to me that the more we expand, the greater the impact, and the larger the dream is that we can really put forth into the community. But we can't do it alone. At the same time, we're the best ones to lead the way because we've had, you know, hundreds of years of practice in formal philanthropy uh, here, particularly in the U.S., yeah. And to to be uh, truthful, honest brokers in that process. We've discussed, if we wind back several of of our shows, um, one of the concepts that you and I have squarely put on the table, and, and I, I really would like to see this become a, more of a discussion, is the role of development professionals, fundraisers, nonprofits, staff people, as sort of the donor's advocate. Uh, because I think part of what we're seeing in, in our industry, and I think for some folks in our industry, it continues to be a, a, a mystery and potentially even sort of uh, uh, an irritant is the rapid growth of donor advised funds. What is behind people wanting to give through donor advised funds? Because they don't have to. There's no added benefit um, in terms of a bigger tax deduction or anything of that sort. But people, families, philanthropists, smaller donors are beating a path to donor advised funds. And mm-hmm. I think it is in part because they desire to have professional advisors who can help them advise where that money should go, where they can have impact, that they can be thoughtful about their giving, that they might actually save money for a couple of years to make a big gift later and to have more impact. And one of the other messages that, that we continue to, to, to hear uh, here at CAF America, where you know we, we host donor advised funds right. uh, here, <laughs> is that, that donors want 
the opportunity to have impact on the ground. And they're not looking for a lot of that money to be eaten up by sort of administrative costs. So right. what they have found in donor advised funds is a low-cost way to essentially share the services with other philanthropists so that they have ready expert advice available to them where they might individually not be able to hire their own advisors or even find good advisors. They're able to turn to whichever donor advised fund uh, they're working with and find that expertise. So I think that, that ties back to your call for being an honest broker, for providing that kind of service, um, and, and being true to philanthropy um, in that we're here to provide service to the philanthropist. And yeah, and I don't, I don't think we. Yeah, yeah, I don't think we see ours. It's the it's the absence of the sense of partnership. We still look yes. upon giving as a transaction, instead of a That's transformation. Right. The transformation is that I become your partner. When I invest yep. in you, I become your partner. I last week I spoke to Silicon Valley AFP chapter. We had over a hundred people, yep. and it was an amazing turnout. And my topic was planned giving in an era of instant gratification. So how do you get donors to think long term? And here again I said, look at your messages. Your annual messages are all about urgency, urgent need for money, urgent need to make your budget, urgent need for this, this, and this. And then you're surprised when you don't have the message or the response for your plan giving. Well, why would I, you know, why would I make a gift that might not mature for 30 years if, in fact, you're telling me it's all urgent, urgent, urgent? And I've yeah, done feasibility right. studies for endowment funds, and donors have said, well, why would I put 100000 into their endowment when they can only use, you know, like 4500 a year of it? whereas I could just give them 100000 outright. So where are we with this? And there, was, um, there were two really wonderful examples of, um, you know, of organizations that are trying to extend and expand. One is a medical center in Hackensack, New Jersey, and they call it plannual giving, and it's a special mailing that they send. It's an annual message for their donors under $10,000 that then allows okay. them to start accessing information. And the others were um, the, uh, the Concerned Scientists Group, and they got a challenge grant, uh, a guy that said that he would give $5,000 for every new or newly identified planned gift and they and it was a you know it was a million dollars that the guy was offering and they thought oh we'll never <laughs> we'll never get 200 you know planned gifts to be to come forward or or be created they got 248 and they had to go back to the guy and say would you match the rest of them and he said of course but their yeah. message changed and if we do not engage our communities then we continue to operate like this separate silo. And, of course, my theory about silos is that you, you know, put them on their sides and use them as pipelines. And I would like yeah, to right. see our sector as it is become a pipeline into our community 
where we are involved with a lot more organizations outside of philanthropy where we are carrying the message of philanthropy, that voluntary giving, asking, joining, and serving, that voluntary expression of shared values. Yes, I care about education. How can my corporation, how can my business, uh, you know, how can we become engaged? And I think that that is the gift that we offered. Ted, we've been doing this for a long time in our country. We have, I mean, I think that philanthropy is our finest social export uh, as I work around the world. But you know what? Others are getting out there ahead of us because they they are more nimble and more flexible and they have had to solve problems more quickly particularly the work I do in Central and Eastern Europe. And post-communist, I mean, they had to move quickly to restore infrastructure. They didn't do it by creating rigid silos of sectors. They did it by Mm. bringing people together and saying, how can we fix this? And this is what I would like to see us, you know, move towards here. As as a sector. Yeah, well, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, one of the things I, I know we've discussed here before is, you know, one of the things that I've done um, uh, in in this vein over the last couple of years is I, I went to uh, the American College of Financial Services and, and completed the certification program uh, to become a chartered advisor in philanthropy. And I think this is the aspect of what's missing when you, you mentioned that you were at the AFP chapter in Silicon Valley. They have them, you know, all over the world. But increasingly, you know, what, what's evident, and, and I, it's, it felt like there was a time in the past that this was appropriate, is, is it's all about sort of the techniques of the how-to, uh, do I make an ask, rather than thinking in terms of how do I serve as the advocate for the donor to help them learn and advise them appropriately on how to create that impact, right. how to give well how to give well over time. And that's where I think um, there's an aspect to uh, the work of AFP and other similar organizations that's missing the aspect of, of being a, serving as an advisor, serving as a donor's advocate yep. in the process of I've got to make a budget, I've got to raise money, so how many direct mail letters do I need to send out? How many emails do I need to send out? Exactly. What's my yield going to be? Right. <laughs> Right, which, which becomes all about the, the tactics and That's right. the timetable and schedule. And, and there are a lot of people that are very smart, that are very good at what they do um, in this sector that still miss the opportunity to take a step back and say, but how would I properly advise those donors? Right, and, and I think that anybody who has not had the pleasure of reading Charlie Collier's book, Wealth and Families, if you can get your hands on right. it, yeah. Charlie was the, you know, he was the uh, principal gift advisor at Harvard. And Charlie, you know, goes through a whole sequence of things that he explores with families when he would be talking about them and that, that wealth is not just measured by their, their capital, their available capital. It is, yes, financial wealth, but it's also, you know, human capital and it's intellectual capital and what are the things that people value, and really getting them to understand that you care deeply. It gets back to our role as caregivers. You care deeply. Right. And this whole thing about are we mechanics or are we artists, 
uh, really resonates with me. And about a year and a half ago, um, I had uh, a meeting with the, the, the head of the fundraising school, and he, he just kind of asked me, you know, what, what my observations were. And I said exactly what you're saying. I said, I, I'm concerned that we need to really work on the, the soft skills. And um, so he responded immediately, and the Indiana University Fundraising School leadership um, pan, you know, forums were the result. And I'll be able to be in the one in January in Miami. And we are, I'm going to be on a panel with uh, Sarah Conrath, and she has worked in the area of empathy. She's written a book on it. And how do we use our skills of empathy? How do we use those soft skills as development professionals? Well, as far as I'm concerned, one of the things we need to get over, and this would be a great gift we could give, is that we need to get over the idea that we are fundraisers. Every time I hear that word, I just shudder. Because as long as we believe that we're fundraisers, then that's what we're going to do. But if we believe that we are development professionals, then we will be developing relationships. We will be developing donors. And, you know, we're looking at such a churn rate uh, still and... In the new, I've forgotten whose study it was, whether it was U.S. Trust or Blackboard, but one of the, you know, kind of autumn studies showed that people under 50 are, of course, they're funding issues, whereas people over 50 are funding organizations, and there's kind of a shift that happens there. And so then the question is, are we building the kinds of relationships that when a person feels that, the issue, yes, is powerful, but now they've selected you. You're the one that they want to fund for this issue. Are we then developing these relationships, or do we continue to be, I think, quite cavalier about just accepting people's money and then just not paying attention to them? You know, it gets back to my transactional giving diagram that I've been using for decades. You know, it's it's like a bell curve, and the solicitation's at the top, and everything after the solicitation is just, oh, God, let's get this person in the donor database, and let's just leave them there until we need more money. And that's not our gift. That's not the gift we should be giving. Exactly, and that's, um, I think that's where we go wrong as a sector is, first of all, seeing donors as a paycheck. As that's a right, or an ATM. Um, One and, woman said she felt like or, an ATM. Or, exactly, because what we're, not, what we're thinking of is the transaction of, okay, I got the gift, and then thank you very much, but then I'm on to the next ATM transaction because I need the next. And it's not to say that nonprofits – don't need to do that. But it's a context in which you understand right. that there's a relationship there, that the donor is looking, and, and we've said this before, that you know, my view of philanthropy is that the things that you do as a nonprofit are things that your donors want to have happen. They want uh, children to be educated. They want clean water. They want trees planted. They want whatever it is that you're doing to happen. Uh, and in fact, if they have the opportunity to drop everything and go and you know feed that child themselves, plant that tree themselves, clean that beach themselves, 
than they would, or ideally they would like to. But in lieu of doing that, what they're doing is paying you to ensure that the things in society that they want to have happen are in fact going to be done and that they're going to be done by people that they trust and people that can actually accomplish that. And that's sort of the value proposition of philanthropy. It's not you have a budget and you have to pay your staff and pay your rent, and so I'm going to give you money to help make that happen. It's that I want the things that you stand for to happen, and here is money, go do that. So right. are we honoring the, 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 the actual interaction of a person who wants something to happen and, and the impact that they desire to have happen, or are we seeing them, as you said, as an ATM where, thank you very much, I'm now going to make my budget this year, I'll be back next year, not to talk to you about what we accomplished, not to talk to you about the yeah. things that you just paid money to have happen, but right. because I'm going to need that money again. And uh, by yeah, the way, I remember, I'll be I remember going to a woman in a feasibility study uh, for an organization, and she said, I won't give to them again. She said, their last campaign, I gave to them for X you know, project in the campaign, and I never heard whether it got built or not. So I went back to the client, and I said, you know, you've got a problem here. And um, they said, oh, yeah, no, gosh, no, you know, we, we built that program. We built... So we only extended the clubhouse, you know, and I said, well, why didn't you tell the person? Oh, they said, you know, it it took us so long to do it. We were kind of embarrassed. I mean, what is the matter? (laughs) What is the matter? It's just like you think, oh, oh my gosh, you don't get it. Uh, One of the things that we're doing, I'm in a big campaign right now, and um, one of the things that we've been doing is sending out, you know, a quarterly, you know, one-screen newsletter with links, and it's got a great open rate. And, you know, we're coming back, we're circling around now for second gifts, and it's been pretty easy because they're totally informed about what's happened with their first gift. And That's right. And it, it and, really and does make a difference. they feel connected. They feel connected, which, again, right. you made the case. You successfully made the case. You invited them in as a partner to say, together we will accomplish whatever. But were you genuine in saying that you're a partner in helping us accomplish that, or were you saying, just give me the check? Just give me the check, exactly. And please don't ask questions. And the outcome, (laughs) what happens next, um, is going to tell the donor uh, in a, a more real way than, than you telling them that, that you're going to do something because mm-hmm. they're paying attention to what kind of communication do I get back. Is the communication coming back to me uh, in the form of uh, a report update, but what it really is is another ask for money. Okay, oh, well, yes. what do you think about relatives who only show up when they want money? Exactly. Are they the first ones that you think <laughs> of fighting to your next party? Are they the Not first really. ones that you think of as caring about you? No, they don't care about you. They care about your, your bank yeah. account, and they tell yeah. you and show you every time. Well, what kind of friend are you as a nonprofit? I'm asking these questions, of course, rhetorically, but I think they're helpful for our listeners to focus on what kind of partner are you um, and how are you providing that information back? Because time and time again, and, and just to, to let everyone know over on Facebook, I've been posting a lot of the links that, uh, that Kay and I have been talking about. Uh, Charlie Collier's book, I put a, a link up uh, that. 
the American College uh, of, of Financial Services, the Chartered Advisor and Philanthropy Program, um, and it was the U.S. Trust Report that you were uh, that you were referencing. Yeah, I think uh, yeah. Philanthropic for individuals. Um, so I posted a, a link to that. So the resources are available. They're there. Um, members of our community have been telling fundraisers and nonprofit organizations to focus on the relationship, to focus on solutions, and donors time and time again keep coming back through, through your uh, you know, direct interviews for various campaigns that you're involved with. Certainly the direct interaction that I have with our donors is that they're looking for impact. They're totally. looking to know that when I give that $50,000, when I give that million dollars, and the partnership that I'm building with you is that things are going to happen, did they actually happen? Well, and, and here's, here's the irony. You know, everybody says, oh, yeah, it's all about impact, impact. You know what, Ted? Yeah. It's always been about impact, but we called always. it making a difference. We mm-hmm. know from the beginning of organized philanthropy that people gave to, quote, make a difference. All we've done is just switched in a 21st century word, impact, and we've got metrics and we've got measurements and all of that, and probably over-measured. I had a very lively discussion (laughs) with a friend of mine the other day about that. Um, You know, is it, is it, there's a lot of things that can't be measured, but you can still sense that you're making a difference, and it's all in the stories that we tell, and, you know, how, what more elegant instrument of partnerships, relationships, philanthropy itself, caregiving, than to be able to tell the stories and to acquaint people. And as you said, you know, take them with you on tours and to let them see the, um, you know, how this all works. We did the most fabulous thing at the board meeting for this organization that's just hit the midpoint mark on its campaign and it's not about a building. It's going to be about a building going forward. But this has all just been about, you know, increasing staffing in certain areas, strengthening programming. And so we cooked up this terrific presentation um, for the board where each of the program heads, the division heads, came in and did pretty jazzy videos and talked about, you know, how they've been able to increase and improve all of their work because of the investment, most of, most of which, of course, in a quiet phase, comes from the board. I mean, the board just was walking on air leaving that room. They had that right. sense that they were partners in this transformation, and they referred right. to this as a transformation. And I think this is the gift, the greatest gift, is to, first of all, lift ourselves out of the mechanics role and into the role of thought leaders and thought partners and how can we truly affect our communities in a way that ensures the health and well-being of our citizens? How can we deal with food security issues? How can we deal with aging at home, aging in place? How can we deal with inadequate education, but we can be the leaders. And too often, Ted, I see that the nonprofit representative is kind of invited on, oh, well, I guess we should have them come and sit around the table because, after all, they do Meals on Wheels, you know, that kind of thing. 
instead of saying, you know what, these people get it. They've been feeding these people. They know what it's about. Maybe together we could mobilize in this community so that we finally solve this issue. We serve problems, Ed. We don't solve them. Right. Well, that that comes back to, you know, again, another principle that you and I have sort of put out there that, you know, needs a solution somewhere is, you know, every single one of our listeners, every single nonprofit organization should be asking itself right now, do we exist out of habit or do we make a difference? That's right. And if we make a difference, how can we improve upon making a difference? And if we exist out of habit, should we stop doing that and maybe partner with another, merge with another? In, in other words, put the emphasis on the kind of impact um, and, 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 as you said, helping get things done in a community and being able to point to those um, topics. So that is our greatest gift. Um, Kay, we're going to be right back after a very quick break. Um, at that point, we'll, you know, we'll have about uh, 15, 16 minutes left. Okay. So what I want to do in the, the last segment here is kind of break this down for the listeners that we have, uh, because as we know, this is one of the biggest shows that we have each year, is how does this affect your uh, 2018? What should you be doing, and how do you take Good. away from this discussion, which is, which is not, and I, and I know I speak for you, is not meant to be sort of an admonishment of our colleagues, no. but instead a call to action. It's, it's meant to be, we have great gifts to offer. Are we doing it in an effective way? And we'll be right back after this break. Great. Every day, millions of people are online, many of whom want to help, volunteer, and donate to a good cause. Nonprofit organizations can use many Google tools to reach potential donors around the world and raise more money. And as an approved nonprofit, it doesn't cost a thing. It's all free. Google Grants helps you promote your website with free advertising on Google.com through the AdWords program. With Google AdWords, you create ads and choose words or phrases related to your nonprofit organization. When people search on Google using one of your phrases, your ad will appear next to the Google search results under the Sponsored Links section. AdWords allows you to target certain geographic areas, dates, and times of day for your ads to appear. YouTube for Nonprofits is another tool that can boost donations to your organization. The program offers a number of perks that get your message out there and drive viewers to take action and donate. You can list your organization on YouTube's nonprofit channel and add call-to-action overlays on your videos to drive viewers to donate. Need help analyzing your website traffic and marketing effectiveness? Google Analytics is a free tool that will give you rich insight and help you increase the number of people that visit and donate to your site. Google Analytics can be invaluable to many people in your organization, such as development directors, marketing staff, and your web team. There are many other tools that can help you reach more donors and raise funds, like Google Checkout, where you can process credit card donations with no transaction fee, Google Sites to create a free website, and Website Optimizer, where you can figure out the best landing pages to turn site visitors into donors. To get started, apply for Google for Nonprofits today. Remember, our podcasts and archives are always available 24 hours a day at tedhart.com. Click on Radio Links. 
If you're listening live today, the phone lines are open. Call in and ask a question by dialing 347-324-3080. Now, back to The Nonprofit Coach with Ted Hart. And we're back here live with Kay Sprinkle Grace, a globally known organizational consultant, a deep thinker of today, uh, helping us un- to understand as a philanthropic community what is our greatest gift. So we, we sort of explored this from a lot of different angles, and we keep coming back to this notion that we have great gifts that we're not necessarily bringing to the forefront and it's not just the ability to ask for money, but it's the ability to help donors make a difference. So how do we put this into action? How, what, what are the takeaways for our audience today as they look at 2018 and want to make a difference and want successful nonprofits that can make a difference? Well, I think that we have, as a sector, made enormous, enormous differences, enormous changes. But we are in a new era, a new generation, and we have to work in a different way. And I believe that the way that we can be effective, if, if, you, if you think about our sector and all of our organizations, all those of you who are out there listening, thinking about your organization, ask yourself this question. How much more powerful could we be in terms of changing our community or enriching our community if we had more partners, more donor partners, more affiliates, more people working with us, if we were collaborating intentionally with others who share the same mission. Because remember that mission isn't what you do. Mission is why you do what you do. It's the human or societal need that you're meeting. So therefore, there may be six or seven organizations in your community that are basically focusing on the same mission area. What would happen if you got together? And that's really what I'm saying, Ted, is that I think we have built a, a very impressive model in terms of philanthropic um, initiative. But what I feel now is it's time for us to be bold again and to say, you know what? We are really good at what we do. Let us become the leaders in the community working to solve these problems. And that is, as philanthropic organizations, that would be the greatest gift we could give to our communities, would be uh-huh. to... How do you make that happen, though? I mean, that, is, it, is it easier said than done? Is there something that we're missing oh. as a sector um, in that, you know, we're not, we're not having that kind of impact? No, we're not, because one thing is that we get very, very protective about our donors. And I, oh. I did a project once that was three organizations. It was funded by the Packard Foundation, three organizations, all of which worked in the area of domestic violence, and they were all in the same community, and the Packard vision on this was to raise the awareness of domestic violence and that we would do a campaign together, a community awareness campaign with a relatively modest fundraising piece that went with it. And when we got to the point of asking for the donor lists so that we could do a merging of the lists and so that we would not be sending duplicate mailings, one of the groups dropped out. And they said, you can't have our list. These are our donors. 
Well, listen, you right. know what? Donors don't like to think that you think you own them. They like to That's think right. that they have free will. <laughs> and, because they but, do. Yeah, and the, and the rest of the story is that we then agreed with the two remaining organizations that the money would be split evenly no matter if it was a known donor to one organization or the other. The whole idea was the money would be split evenly. And when it came time to split the money, there was one person that had really given a lot of money. And this organization, one of the organizations said, that's our donor. I, we're that's not going to split donor, that money. Yeah. That's our donor. And so we actually called the donor in, and we had a, it was very, the donor really enlightened the organization that he was not their donor. He was an investor in ending domestic violence in the community. Mm-hmm. And so that's and the that, first that's hurdle. What he, that's what he, that, that was the takeaway for him. Um, and, and just because my name exists on a list that you have uh, doesn't mean that I'm yours. That's right. And we know that, you know, when you get into the, the, the intricacies of university fundraising where you may have multiple schools and departments that want to reach out to certain donors, they often don't check whether that's still the area the donor would like to give to. You're just told as another area that you can't go to that donor because that donor belongs to this other, you know, uh, major right. gift office. So we well, have to I've get past you, that. I think I've shared with you in the past a, a campaign that I was involved with that was a, a massive cancer center build-out. Um, and the amount of money that needed to be raised was so large that it was sort of like all hands on deck and, and sort of every donor needed to be tapped uh, to give to this program. And we had a particular donor who, of course, very much supported the institution, wanted to be part of any initiative that was uh, meaningful to that institution, um, and would have given, you know, just a, a nominal gift to be part of that campaign to show support. But when we actually listened to this particular donor, uh, what we learned and what we heard was that um, this guy's mother was very consequential in his life, um, that music was very important to her and to her, his, her life and his memories of her. And so when we came back to him and pitched him on the idea of giving to a music therapy program, he stepped up to give such a large gift that the program was then named for his mother. And <laughs> I think that's... Yeah. Yeah, that's an example of listening and allowing the donor who has the money and does not owe you that money to give in a way that's consequential to that donor rather than shoehorning them into a campaign so that you can make a budget. That's right. And, I mean, we we did at Stanford right after the 1989 earthquake. We were in the middle of a campaign, and there was horrible destruction on the campus, $60 million worth of destruction. And um, they, um, we had we had coded donors as as DNS do not solicit, and we decided that because of the nature of this, that we would include those people, but with a letter, you know, with the appeal, with a letter that says we understand that you had requested not to be solicited by Stanford, blah 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 blah. We had hundreds of donors who wrote back and said, 
I don't remember ever saying I didn't want to be solicited. And, you know, that's the other thing. How often do we check in with people and just say, you know, here's an update. Um, You know, if you'd like to keep hearing from us, there's so much we could do to show that we care about something other than the money. And so I think the first thing then is that we just really do need to say how much more powerful could we be if we reached out? How do we reach out? I think we reach out by having, first of all, and I'm, I'm working extensively, as you know now, in design principles and applying design principles to solving our community problems and working in, in nonprofits. And the, the whole idea there is, is that we are often trying to solve the wrong problem because we haven't mm. truly discovered the problem. So it would be having a community forum and then also realizing that people who care about, say, the environment tend to give to four or five organizations that care about the environment. So if I belong to the Sierra Club, I probably also belong to the National Resources Defense Council. I probably belong to World Wildlife, you know. And so none of them own me. And how much more receptive would I be if I thought that they were all working together to advance and solve what I really care about. The next thing, though, Ted, it's the message. Our messages still need a lot of work. We still drift into the point of our needing money rather than the community needing what we do. And they, and particularly when we're, particularly annual. And so, you know, getting back to the talk that I gave last Tuesday, you know, the annual fund, you want an immediate response. But then, and you use a little bit of desperation and urgency, <laughs> but then all of a sudden you want me to make a bigger gift, a major gift or a planned gift, and your message is completely different. It's about mm-hmm. how I'm investing in the future and how you're going to be there for the community. Well, wait a minute. You just told me <laughs> that if I didn't give, oh, you know, it's our programs may be in jeopardy. So we have to really take a much longer view of our messaging. So we need to reach out. We need to look at our messaging. We need to make sure that we don't get into this trap of owning donors because otherwise we'll never be able to work together. And our gift is such that we could truly change the world. And we do it in many ways in many places but we could do even more if we would just just realize how truly well, think, powerful we can be. That's right. Well, I think that the timing is interesting because one of the things that, that is, you know, certainly uh, taking a lot of uh, interest here in Washington, D.C., is this new tax bill that yeah, seems to be you know, rushing it through its yep. way through Congress. Um, and there are aspects of that bill uh, that are predicted uh, to potentially reduce the amount of philanthropic uh, right. funds available uh, by 20 to $30 billion. Right. Um, and so I think part of what we're talking about here today and sort of as, uh, sort of as a way to, to wrap up and bring all this together is that there's going to be less resources, there's going to be less money available um, I think a lot of smaller nonprofits are particularly vulnerable because they rely on smaller donors. <laughs> they may be the first ones to not give. 
And so this call for coming together, creating greater impact, mm -hmm. uh, combining resources uh, may need to happen for, uh, for survival. That's right. Uh, but in some cases may end up providing stronger opportunities for donors to have impact in their communities. So I, I'm certainly not advocating, I don't think this is the way the public policy should be used to advance what we're talking about here. Um, but I think that there are going to be a lot of nonprofits that, whose missions are going to be at peril. I do too. Uh, and, I, and again, I think, Ted, that it really, it's all in how we message this too. And I think you know as well as I, that those the last time we went through like the recession, you know, that those organizations that sent out these desperate messages were not nearly as successful as the ones who sent out messages that said, you know, in this year we've been able to, you know, do this, 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 and this. Uh, I did a, right. a scholarship program uh, with a community college district, and oh my God, their first letter was so desperate, and we just flipped the letter. We just flipped it completely. Great news. Thus far this year, we've been able to fund 40 students. Here's a little profile on two of these 40. They are incredible. More good news. We have 40 more students waiting for you to invest in their future. You know, will you give a scholarship? We went over our goal uh -huh. in a recession year because it was about, it was about hope. And, right. you know... And when making we, a difference. About and making, making a, a difference. difference. That's right. And when we talk about, you know, the gifts, you know, one of the gifts of this season, whatever your faith, is hope. And I believe that so we can offer even more hope in our communities if we can see our way clear to take the incredible gifts that we have, our knowledge, our experience, our integrity, our respect, the trust that people have, and say, we want to open wide what we've been doing. We want philanthropy to be a movement in our community. Will you join us? And, Kay, this is our greatest gift. This is the new future of philanthropy. All of these various different changes and wins uh, uh, are coming into philanthropy. And those of us who have been here, those of us who make up the philanthropic community, need to turn our attention to providing good advice, being transparent, giving donors the opportunity to make great things happen, and not just see them as an ATM. Uh, you got how's it, that for, for a call to action for 2018? Boy, oh boy, that's my call, and that's yours too. And this is our call, and I think it's just about over, isn't it? <laughs> it is. Well, Kay, thank you again for bringing uh, your wisdom uh, to the nonprofit coach, um, giving us a lot to think about here on our holiday show. It's a story of hope. Um, it's a story that says that we know that the expertise is here, but is it being used for the best uh, uh, opportunities for our communities? Um, and so the question is, what is our greatest gift? I think, uh, Kay, uh, we say goodbye and happy holidays to turn that back to each of our listeners and say, what is your greatest gift and how are you using it to benefit Absolutely. Okay, thank you for being my guest again here. Ted, on the it is Coach. always Happy my pleasure. You. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. You've been listening to the Nonprofit Coach Radio Show with Ted Hart. 
tell all your friends to check out our production schedule and download. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.